0: Dear friends, welcome to the last lecture of music under Stalin. Today the topic is the year 1948 in Soviet music. What's the significance of year 1948? You might remember the book by George Orwell, which is called "1984," and you might remember that it was written in 1948. So this dystopia uh, came to him in his dreams in. That year of 1948, and uh, perhaps the events that I 'm going to talk about uh, today um, also contributed yeah, to 1984 in some way. It was a very widely publicized musical debacle. Uh, one of the journalists who was present in Moscow in 1948 immediately wrote a book which is called "Musical Uproar in Moscow." and it became known all around the world what was happening to music in this communist country. Uh, And that even split the Western left, the Western artistic left, because some of them, you know, thought that Stalin was doing the right thing, and other people just couldn't understand how people like Shostakovich and Prokofiev could be denounced in this way. But today we're not going to talk about the international dimension so much. We're going to talk about what was happening in detail um, in those first months of 1948 in the Soviet Union. So uh, the main players, the players at the top, are Stalin and Andrei Zhdanov. Andrei Zhdanov was someone who became he, he was positioned now after the war in charge of ideology yeah so he was uh, his official position was head of the department for uh, agitation and propaganda of the central committee of the Communist party yeah so he a, was a party chief responsible for ideology and uh, the The in music didn't uh, lead the way. Um, From 1946, there was already this harshening of the ideological climate, very much against the expectations that people had, uh, because, as you might remember, during the war, actually, um, the climate became slightly softer in terms of, you know, what was allowed uh, in the arts. And uh, there was a lot of cosmopolitanism because you know, we were together with the allies, there was a lot of, uh, sort of international relation, relations um, being enjoyed, and suddenly all of that uh, came to an end in a very unexpected way. So first there was uh, poetry and literature in 1946, um, including the denunciation of Anna Ahmatova, then theater, and then finally in 1948 came music. So, um, it was a very strange um, excuse to start this campaign. It was an opera which is called The Great Friendship. And the opera was written by a composer called Vano Muradeli, and the party resolution that eventually came out of all of that on the 10th of February 1948 was called about The Great Friendship by Muradelli. But in fact, it was just an excuse. Uh, What was this opera, The Great Friendship? Uh, What was the reason for it being denounced? And again, we cannot believe what we see. We cannot believe what we hear. Uh, The opera, which had another name, uh, also which is called the Extraordinary Commissar, was actually inspired by the real life story of Sergo Arginikidze, who was a Bolshevik and a friend of Stalin, as you can see, um, who uh, took charge of the expansion of the Soviet um, power to the, uh, to the Caucasus. Yeah, so during the Civil War, he was absolutely very important in all these Transcaucasian republics um, as bringing Bolshevism there and muradeli who was uh, himself from the same town as stalin yeah he was from gori and was trying to identify because of that as a georgian although actually he wasn't georgian he was ethnically armenian but he changed his name even yeah, to be more Georgian. And he thought, you know, if I choose this plot about the establishment of Soviet power in the, in the Caucasus, you know, Stalin is bound to like it. And everyone thought that too. Yeah, so it was dedicated to the 30th anniversary of the Great October Revolution. It was produced at great expense in many opera houses at the same time. So it was a very, very safe bet. But you should never try to second guess yeah, the dictator. Because actually, Stalin secretly hated Orgenikidze. Not many people knew about that. Orgenikidze actually committed suicide in 1937 just before he was about to be arrested. His brother was arrest- already arrested. So during the purges, but because he, he managed to commit suicide before he was arrested, yeah, he was buried with great pomp, and nobody knew yeah, about this, this private story. So probably the most important thing that annoyed Stalin about this opera was the plot. But he couldn't say this. yeah. So instead, um, he uh, started talking about the music, and that he disliked the music, that the music was c- cacophonic, yeah, chaotic, and, and so on. Yeah, so, um, this is uh, the actual long resolution published in Pravda. Uh, And this is what was said about the music, that the principal faults of this opera lie in the music, which is inexpressive and impoverished, does not contain a single memorable area, chaotic, inharmonious, constructed largely from dissonances and sonorities that offend the ear. So it was basically a rehashing of the criticisms that were experienced by Shostakovich and the other formalists in 1936. Now, let us... Uh, have a listen and whether you would agree with this assessment. So this is um, one of the numbers in the opera. Could have been written by Borodin. Yeah. Uh, sort of Russian orientalist music yeah, so with this Eastern coloring. Um, very, very uh, melodic and nice. Another thing that uh, the resolution said is that the composer failed to draw upon the riches of folk melody, uh, the song and dance tunes that are to be found in such abundance among the peoples of the USSR. Uh, and uh, there was a rumor that Stalin particularly disliked one of the dancers, which was the Lesginka, because it wasn't the Lesginka that he was familiar with. Yeah? The composer actually had the temerity to write his own Lesgenka. So let's hear it. Uh... <laughs> so on. Yeah, I think it's still very tuneful. You know, it has a little funny, a few funny chords, but uh, it's still very tuneful. So, uh, when this opera was proclaimed formalist, uh, really, people didn't know what to do. Composers were completely confused, because if this is formalist, like, what what is left for us to do? How can we deal with these criticisms? So, if we talk about the real reasons, yeah, the reasons behind the scenes of why uh, the, this 1948 resolution happened. There are a few of them yeah, on different levels. So uh, one of them is, was this ideological trend which was anti-Western, anti-cosmopolitan, uh, instigated by Stalin and Zdanov after the war. And just it was the way to kind of get rid of all the associations with the Allies that uh, were pursued during the war, yeah, and now again go for isolation, the Iron Curtain. This was just before yeah, the Cold War actually officially started. Zdanov also had a personal distaste towards everything that was remotely modernist. He was a, a, a fan of Russian classical music um, and Western classics uh, of the 19th century, and he didn't really think uh, that um, so being original uh, in a modernist way, was in any way good. There was also an administrative reason, um, a, a power um, struggle reason, because Zhdanov wanted to get rid of some people while this was all happening. For example, about of the Minister of Culture, Hrabchenko, who was quite a powerful figure. So now that he got rid of him uh, at that point, yeah, the party now controls the arts directly, yeah, without the... Um, Uh, uh, mediation of the state organizations such as ministries. Then there was, of course, the power struggle in the composers' union because there are always people who would benefit from such an affair. So there were composers who were previously overlooked. They thought that um, Prokofiev and Shostkoch were getting too many commissions, that their friends in the mm, Moose Fond, which was the, the kind of material base of the union of composers, were giving them too much money and so on. Yeah, so they also wanted a piece of that pie. And then there was a sincere aesthetic dislike, again, of modernism among composers of a more traditional bent. So some of them wrote letters in support of the resolution just because they really believed uh, in, in, in that. So what were the offending works that were chosen? Um, so, uh, various works were quoted. Of course, Shostakovich's symphony is starting from the eighth. Yeah, we're already experiencing various difficulties, number eight, number nine. So he was under criticism from around 1943. Uh, Shostakovich's, uh, sorry, Prokofiev's sixth symphony was also seen as more gloomy and kind of more expressionist than his fifth. So he was also found to be on the wrong route Uh, I wanted to show as an example one offending piece which is slightly um, different. It's a cantata by Nikolai Miskovsky, which is called Kremlin by Night. Uh, It is based on uh, on a poem which was printed in official newspapers and then reprinted in various anthologies, so it was a completely safe poem to use. It portrayed Stalin working in his office during the night. See, this was kind of a legend or maybe the truth. You can see this poster from 1940 yeah, that shows him doing that. Uh, and it was all set up as a kind of fairy tale or a legend. And uh, at some point when the dawn is breaking, um, history, uh, dressed as an old lady with, uh, with keys, yeah, jungling the keys, finds him there and says, you know, you've been working too hard, go and have a rest, yeah? So a a funny kind of uh, very unusual uh, presentation of Stalin, uh, without any pomp, very lyrical, and I have no idea why Moskowski actually chose this poem. I cannot read into his mind. The poem is not very good, uh, but maybe because it was something different, uh, because maybe because it allowed him an opportunity to write something that was not kind of officially vulgar and loud and yeah, and pompous and rather was lyrical. So he wrote this cantata and uh, uh, let us hear a little bit of it, the moment when history comes and sort of basically sings a lullaby to him. <laughs> as it was performed in 1947, the criticism came out that it was mystical, Um, the text was was criticized despite having been approved before, because the text is one thing when it's printed, it's another thing when it's sung from the stage, Yeah, it has more impact. So uh, that was another offending work. yeah. Uh, Kachetrian's symphony poem, yeah, or his third symphony, um, which was criticized for being kind of extravagant and in, a, in this very strange style that really Cechatrian um, dared to, to break out of his national style and do something else. Um, I mean, he can still uh see uh, hear the basics of his style there, but it it sounds very different it 's very unusual symphony, which has an organ in it and lots of trumpets, I think up to seventeen or something if I 'm not mistaken yeah and it creates this this very overwhelming sound. can hear, yeah, that it's, it's unusual in the symphony to have this organ solo and to have all these notes being added by by new trumpets adding, yeah, so you have a, a chord from many, many notes, yeah, many, than, many more than should be allowed. Um. So eventually uh, we ended up in the resolution with six named formulas yeah the seventh was muradeli but muradeli was very clever and he immediately said you know it's not my fault it it's it, professors at the conservatoire who told me to write in this way, I always wanted to write healthy melodic music. Yeah, so he actually managed to escape very quickly. And it was these people who were named in the resolution. This is the order in which they were they were named, yeah, which was not alphabetical. So you can assume that Shostakovich was the worst offender. Yeah, and Moskovsky was the least offender. Mm, there were some of them like Papo, for example, who was, you know, probably his name was plucked out of thin air. Uh, because he was supposed to replace Kabalevsky who managed to save himself at the last moment uh, owing to his connections. Yeah, because to be named in such a resolution was obviously a very, very bad thing. And because um, the, this is how they, they're named. Yeah, the, the trend has found its fullest expression in the work of these composers whose music displays most strikingly formalist per- perversions and undemocratic tendencies. Yeah, it's music that reflects the dementia of bourgeois culture with a complete negation of musical art a dead end. Very, very strong, much stronger actually than in 1936. Yeah, so you take six best composers yeah, of the country and, uh, and say these things about them. And of course, then administrative measures followed. Three days later, uh, there was a ban. Uh, This is only part of the list of the works that were banned for performance, uh, only Shostakovich and Prokofiev here to save time. But you can see that it's not only those works that were identified in the process of the campaign, but also earlier works by the same composer, yes, such as even aphorisms by Shostakovich, works from the 20s. Yeah, Piano not number 8 by Prokofiev, which actually won a Stalin Prize. Yeah, so um, uh, completely, yeah. And you can see that concert organizers, of course, always wanted on, uh, to the air on the side of caution. So they would not perform any works of, by these people. Yeah, So you can imagine what situation um, uh, arose. So uh, who benefited from it? Who were the people who were the beneficiaries? Well, some of them are here. Um we might recognize them. Yes, yeah, so on the right is Tikhon Krenikov, who was appointed General Secretary of the Union comp- composers and then remained in this position for 40, uh, more than 40 years yeah, until the, the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. And he was a composer of a more democratic um, so outlook, so to speak, democratic, yes, yeah, so a more melodic outlook, although he could write in his uh, early uh, works. It's, very, it's a lovely, kind of modernist touches in it. But then he decided that wasn't a prudent thing to do, so he changed his style. Next to him is Vladimir Zaharov, who was uh, mm, the main conductor of the Piatninsky Choir, the folk choir, so his folk style songs also got promoted. Shaporin, Yuri Shaporin was a, a more sort of heavier, more serious composer, but he was a very, um, old-fashioned, yeah, and very classical. His music was almost sometimes indistingu- indistinguishable from, again, somebody from the mighty handful uh, in the 19th century. Uh, there were, um, I always look um, in, at, at, at things like awards, yeah, because I wrote a book in the Stalin Prizes. So let's see what happened in 1948. What works could they award if the list of nominations was suddenly completely emptied. Yeah, what who are you going to award? So they really had to dig very deep and they they found the quartet by Reinhold Glier, yeah, who was one of these conservative composers. And uh, it was a quartet from 1943, so strictly speaking, actually not eligible for the award, but there was nothing else they could pick. And there were no symphonies that they could find that the, because there was such a fear yeah, of awarding something that was too difficult, too intellectual. So let's hear, Uh, it's a lovely uh, quartet um, and it starts very clearly with a song. I don't know whether it's a folk song or a popular song. It even sounds like a Soviet song. Lovely music, um, got an award. Um, but there were also people who had n- nobody had heard before about. This is, uh, you know, the names that were misspelled in the press because people were not familiar with them. So one of the people who got the top award, yes, yeah, so a hundred thousand rubles, huge amount of money, was Jonas Stalat Kelpsha uh, from Lithuania. And that, of course, was uh, a very shrewd political move too. Yeah, because Lithuania joined the Soviet Union, joined. Yeah, was was sort of annexed before the war, and then was readmitted when uh, the war was won. Yeah, 1944. And um, Talladkapsha had a kind of Russian. Uh, background in Russian educational system. He was actually uh, studied in in Petersburg uh, earlier on. Yeah, he was already not a young composer. And he wrote a Stalin cantata based on a poem by Salami Yeneris, and that was a Lithuanian um, you know, female poet who actually read it at the congress at the moment, yeah, when, when Lithuania joined the Soviet Union, and that was the event immemorialized in this stamp. Yeah, so it was a, a very political piece. So um, I don't have a recording of it. So I, um, but I've, I've looked at it. You know, it, it's a, it's a professionally made piece. Um, the interesting thing which uh, Lithuanians have been telling me about is that uh, Talat Kelpscher didn't live to enjoy the fruit of his success. He literally dropped dead during the rehearsal of this cantata, yeah, so you can imagine sort of the people who didn't support this collaboration of Lithuanian intellig- intelligentsia with uh, the Soviet regime um, kind of rejoiced you know, and felt that he was punished. Uh, but there were other people like um, Another Lithuanian uh, composer, Ballist Variones, who was young and very energetic, and he wrote this fantastic virtuoso concerto Which they discovered in 1948, that also got uh, got a high award, and um, I will play you a little bit of the finale, and you will recognize that you know some of it sounds maybe a bit like Tchaikovsky's violin concerto, or you know just as Kachatrian's violin concerto, just based on kind of folk tunes from a different folk. Uh, But there was a moment. There is a moment which is sounds a bit funny. There kind of parallel fifths there or something, and naked fifths, which sounds a bit more modern, modernist. And that particular place was, was actually commented on. You know, there, was, there was a fight among composers whether we should allow this to happen. You know, There's a formless bit in there. So listen out for that. Were awarded yeah but they were all quite uh, quite conventional and had to be very life affirming. But there was also an extension yeah, of these awards towards uh, p- pieces that we might uh, think of you know, towards more middle-brow, low-brow low range, yeah? so not intellectualist, yeah, but, but the opposite of that. For example, pieces for Folk Instruments Orchestra, which was a very Stalinist thing, very, very much part of the Soviet culture, they tried to institute orchestras like that in every single republic Uh, of the Soviet Union. So this is a, a work that was awarded also in 1949, a Russian fantasy by Budashkin. So um, and even so going further, something that wasn't done very much in the first years of those awards, uh, popular songs. Yeah, a composer like Boris Makarov, for example, which really creates very much the sound of these late Stalinist years, uh, to such an extent that it actually, as I've recently found out, penetrated places like North Korean opera. Uh, you know it's this this sound of late stillness years that, that can actually be be heard in some of those pieces <speaking in foreign language> Interesting that a lot of these songs are very lyrical because now that the fight was over, yeah, they uh, were victorious in the war. Uh, they've built already socialism. Yeah, so there's no conflict. There was a period yeah, when you couldn't really talk about any conflict. There was a lack of conflict. So you could just write these lovely lyrical songs, very melodic. Interesting that the Krennikov himself actually didn't get the very good awards uh, because I, I think the hatred for him was so great among his peers that didn't allow that to happen. Uh, but nevertheless, he was a very powerful figure and certainly there was this new situation when all these composers, such as Shostakovich and Prokofiev, were directly answerable to him. So it was under his um, command that repentance and comebacks were allowed to happen. Uh, I love this photograph um, of uh, Prokofiev and his wife uh, sitting in the first Congress of the Union of uh, Soviet Composers in 1948, just a few uh, weeks after the resolution. Yeah, and he he looks uh, incredibly kind of, you know, what is going on, <laughs> um, I think. And um, uh, poor Prokofiev, uh, who hadn't been as seasoned in, in this um, experiencing denunciation as Shostakovich was, uh, really took it very badly. And uh, like Shostakovich, he was had to issue a response this time, yeah, actual letter. Um, where he had to repent and said that he attempted to liberate himself from formalist uh, elements, but um, succeeded to only some some extent and not completely. Yeah. So uh, there was this ritual humiliation. Um, but then um, a very interesting thing happened: that this um, the, the harshest. Uh, period of the 1948-49 yeah, debacle didn't uh, actually last that long, because Zdanov died. Zhdanov died in August 1948, and in principle, um, it could have ended there, you know, because Stalin wasn't interested uh, that much anymore in, in perpetuating this. But this time, you know, it was Khrennikov and the peers who already got the, a bit of that pie who wanted to prolong this and enjoy humiliating composers like Shostakovich and Prokofiev. But it wasn't so easy. And the band that I showed you, yeah, the list of works was overturned in the spring of 1949, already because Shostakovich was required, yeah, by Stalin to go and represent the country in the United States at the so-called World Conference for Peace. Yeah, so this is uh, what he had to withstand. You know, he again looks like a rabbit in the headlights. Yeah, and uh, there were protests. Shostakovich jumped uh, out of the window. He was in a very difficult situation. Um, when this was offered to him by Stalin's secretary on the telephone, yeah, he had the presence of mind to say, "Well, how am I going to go if my music is not actually performed in the Soviet Union?" And, um, and Stalin apparently said, "Well, how come we've, we've never heard of such a thing?" You know, and the band was immediately overturned. Uh, but uh, these uh, sort of comebacks were happening slowly because composers had to show their willingness to reform their musical style. And uh, well, let's start with Shostakovich. Shostakovich, in that year, 1949, wrote, wrote two pieces which were basically dedicated for, to Stalin's 70th birthday, which you can see celebrated here. There was this is huge painting yeah, created for this many of them. So, it was a huge occasion, and uh, Shasković did things that he had never done before. So, one of these pieces was a film score for the fall of Berlin. Uh, It's, again, a a kind of imagined ending to the war, where Stalin flies to Berlin. He never did, but nevertheless, in this film he does, and Stalin apparently uh, quite liked this. Uh, and uh, you can hear uh, when, when all is going on the chorus written by Shostakovich in the style of a kind of Russian 19th century glory opera chorus to the Tsar. Yeah? So it's exactly the same style. <laughs> he so particularly liked that actor because, yeah, he was even more handsome than Stalin himself. So, um, and the second work was his oratorio, uh, which also had that chorus in it. It was called "Song of the Forest," and it was directly respon- responding to Stalin's reforestation plan. Yeah, you can see the poster about it. Yeah, when he's trying to, kind of plant all the forests that were, were destroyed during the war. And uh, to write the, this piece, Shostakovich basically sort of denied himself almost any um, idioms that Shostakovich was known for. Yeah, so it almost doesn't sound like Shostakovich. Maybe that lovely piece for a children's choir that everyone knows and that apparently is incredibly popular in Japan, uh, maybe is an exception. So they're singing it in Russian. Apparently it's really, really, there's a history to it of why it is particularly popular in Japan. But anyway, it was also very popular with Soviet children. My father sang it, my father sang it to me. You know, so everyone knew that that became a real hit. Uh, And Prokofiev, uh, who had much more trouble because he he had a a further setback when he was trying to produce a a socialist realist opera, Story of Real Man, um, in 1948, later on, and was denounced the second time for it. Uh, So it was very difficult for him to come back, especially that he was uh, not at all well. So um, he produced a kind of imitation of that Shostakovich oratoria. Uh, also has a children's chorus and even a child soloist which is very interesting and it's called On Guard for Peace and uh, really a lot of just, uh, Prokofiev's friends were trying to help him you know giving him advice on how to really sort of uh, get the right the tone right and again how to kind of remove most of Prokofievian idioms from um, from this piece The interesting thing about it, I'm going to play it again, it became a hit and we we sang it at school, Uh, but it's a a recording from that time to which someone put um, uh, also contemporaneous images but uh, posted it online uh, just a few weeks ago. So it it acquired new um, meaning yeah during uh, the war after russian invasion of, of ukraine um, all yeah the words or all phrases that contain the word peace yeah become outlawed so this is one of, of them yeah so the uh, the text is that every school children uh, every school child is writing um, on a blackboard and in their notebooks uh, we don't need war And again, you know, what is Prokofiev about that lovely song? You know, maybe one chord <laughs> uh, somewhere. So uh, nevertheless, you know, these conto- uh, composers did get gradually accepted back into the fold, even though the stress of those years certainly had an effect on them. Um, you know, Shabalin, for example, had had a series of strokes. Uh, Katedrian had health, you know, heart trouble. meskovsky died of ca- cancer very, very soon. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah, Prokofiev uh, also, you know, had had strokes and, um, and was in very bad health. So, they really kind of had trouble surviving that period. And during that period, we have a new phenomenon arising, yeah? writing for the desk drawer. Yeah? So waiting, already thinking that times might change. Yeah? Like we are now hoping yeah, and waiting for something in Russia to change. We're just hoping for a miracle. So um, that's, this is what was was thinking as he was creating various works and not releasing them. Uh, publicly. Yeah? So, for example, his uh, quartets number four and five, his violin concerto, um, were, were written during that period but didn't get premiered, say, until you know, 1955, so well after Stalin's death. And uh, this little sheet is actually um, uh, uh, his sketch for a lampoon of the 1948 debacle, yeah? which is called the Anti-Formalist Rayok. Um, I hope that you, you can explore that piece uh, you know, at, at your leisure. Uh, I'll just mention that this was not written in 1948. Yeah, it was too dangerous to commit anything like that to paper at that time. So that actually arises from 10 years later when that resolution was finally yeah, overturned, yeah, kind of officially withdrawn, but it took 10 years. But nevertheless, talking about pieces written for the drawer, I would like to play a piece by Galina Ustvolskaya, who was Shostakovich's student, but also such an uh, unusual, original, powerful composer that she actually possibly influenced Shostakovich much more than he did her. And uh, I always when I, uh, thought, thought when I heard this piece for the first time, it's her octet, you know, one of the eight instruments is actually the timpani, a very unusual piece. Uh, and you think 1950, could this have been written in 1950? It just doesn't sound at all like a 1950 piece. I even thought that it was, uh, you know, she might have changed the dates later. You know, but actually, you know, Shostakovich quotes her trio in his fifth quartet at that time, so the piece did did exist. These pieces didn't get premiered until much later, late 60s and 70s. So let's hear. died in 1953, and uh, after showing him of all these images of, of him alive, I really wanted to show you this. But can you think of any piece of music that commemorates Stalin, written, written on Stalin's death? Well, if you do know a piece like that, please write to me. I will be, I'll be happy to know. I've, I've uh, heard about one of the such piece. I decided not to pursue it because I thought, well, if I find it, do I really want it to be honest. So why were there no pieces uh, made public um, for Stalin's death? Because two weeks later, there was already a secret order throughout the ranks of the intelligentsia. We do not glorify Stalin anymore. Yes, it took two weeks. And the whole big country changes its mind, yeah only two weeks before that they were all tearful, marching millions were marching to stalin 's funeral. There was a huge uh, stampede yeah, in which lots of people died. Two weeks later, people were afraid to say his name and to say anything good about him. So things can change very quickly uh, but um, We, you know, some composers, of course, didn't manage to survive him, and this is why our musical part today will be uh, again from Prokofiev. Uh, I'll tell you about it in a moment, and just for a few minutes, I wanted to take time to draw some conclusions from the whole course, because if those of you who came to the first lecture, you might remember that I started with the idea that we're going to talk about this horrible time, And yet, we love so much of this music that was written during this time. And how can we solve this conundrum? How can we explain it? So, without um, being able to explain it fully, I would like to draw your attention to a a few things. Yeah, so first of all, why did all these pieces, why were they able to appear at that time? Well, first of all, there was huge investment in music as high art. Yeah, there were. Orchestras created. There were opera houses built. Uh, you know, composers were well paid. Uh, there was talent scouting. There was music education uh, developed in all the, the kind of little places, not just in Moscow and Leningrad. Yeah, so there was this infrastructure built, yeah, for music to exist as high art and to be prestigious and to be highly, highly subsidized. Then there was uh, unusually, uh, counterintuitively, the concept of individual creator or even genius was very much alive and well. Uh, it was very different from the Communist China, which uh, yeah, then tried to erase authorship altogether and wouldn't even put yeah, names of composers on the scores. Uh, in, this change happened in the early 30s. Yeah, that it was like an American dream. Yeah? Every, everyone in the Soviet Union could aspire to something, yeah? and if they work well, uh, if they distinguish themselves in some way, they could get higher salaries and lots of prestige. Yeah? So there was this uh, hierarchy created, which also helped yeah, composers to compete with each other, to aspire to a to good life, basically. And they were helped and supported, despite everything that I've discussed here. And it seems that all these professional communities that existed, the unions, the artistic unions were just basically snake pits, yeah, and they were trying to destroy each other. But nevertheless, uh, these communities did exist. They still had agency. Yeah, they still had their say. They still defended very often what was good, what was aesthetically good, not just ideologically good. And uh, um, to, to a great extent, composers were validated and supported by these communities. Then this issue of art belongs to the people. You know, I think this wasn't just a slogan, and I think it, this propaganda really rubbed off both on the creators and on the audiences. Because the creators really were pushed by all these ideological restrictions to write music that was for the people, yeah, which was accessible, which had melodies, which had emotional journeys, narratives, you know, which was uh, kind of exciting and, and and involving and so on, melodic. You know, we've heard some of these pieces today. And on the other hand, the audiences also uh, thought that this music was for them. It is a very different situation. I always compare this with, with Britain. When I, I arrived here and I realized I couldn't afford any concert or, or opera tickets suddenly, yeah, I realized why we have this idea that you know high art belongs to the elite, it's for the rich, and a lot of people would just say, this is not for me, opera is not for me, concert hall is not for me. It wasn't like that. People really believed yeah, that they could go uh, to a concert for almost nothing, yeah, and if they didn't have even that small uh, fair to pay, they would listen to the radio. Yeah, so uh, it, they really believed that if they wished this high art could be theirs, you know, it, it was theirs legitimately, so to speak. And finally, yeah, while we talk about this music, there was this promotion of music without the text. You notice that how Stalin pounced on operas yeah, where there was text, but he didn't actually meddle with the symphonies. Yeah, because it was much harder so there was a space of freedom yeah the space of obscurity where the messages were somehow muted vague mutable yeah sometimes mixed messages and and people while listening to this music could exercise their imagination and it was possibly one of the very least regimented spaces in their lives yeah it's the the, the what the the world that you create in your head as you listen to a piece of such music, and I think for these reasons uh, we, we have those pieces that we still admire. And for us here in the West, and now I'm speaking as a as a member, you know, of of the of the audience uh, who loves this music and who is living in the West, we are attracted also, yeah, like just like uh, people in the Soviet Union were by music which is melodic, emotional, exciting. But it also comes, yeah, from these very dark places. It comes with from interesting times, so to speak. It comes with very interesting biographies, uh, and sometimes dramatic and tragic biographies attached to them. And I think when we listen to these pieces, yeah, we're, we're trying to kind of expand our experience vicariously and experience things we, will thankfully, hopefully, uh, will never experience ourselves. And i think we believe perhaps it's a mistaken belief that somehow it increases our capacity for empathy uh, and we start thinking you know what happens when lovely music beautiful music can be tinged by evil uh, we start thinking of these things and i think for this reason yeah we are still attracted to these works one of them we are going to hear now um, with our lovely performers Laura Twanter-Haydn um, and Peter uh, Limonov, who are going to play Prokofiev's Sonata for cello and piano. It was written in 1949 in the very, very dark times, Yeah, when Prokofiev's music wasn't performed. Um, his first wife was in the labor camp. Uh, his health was shattered. And yet there was a ray of sunlight, you know, Mr. Rostropovich, a cellist, came in one day and said, you know, why don't you write some pieces for the cello? So this is what happens, you know, completely fearlessly uh, in defiance with all the the bans and all the disfavors, yeah, he started bringing these pieces out of Prokofiev one by one. And I think uh, we're going to play the whole thing, it's about 23, 24 minutes in three movements, and um, I think it's a wonderful piece to end our course on because it has something effortful in it, you know, it's a low voice, it's the cello. Yeah, which is uh, sounds from the very beginning in the very low register. There is nothing glib about this music, nothing complacent. It's a piece of resistance, really a piece of resistance of the human spirit in, uh, in the face of uh, all these atrocious things that were going on around them at the time. So let us welcome our performance, Laura van der Heiden and Pyotr Limonov. Give them a round of applause.
1: No, no, no.